Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg here with a public service announcement. As you know, the hit show Mad Men sadly is coming to an end. But we have something that may ease your pain. Last weekend at the lovely Libero Theater in Santa Barbara, the Emmy Award-winning creator of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, joined us to play some games and talk about what it's like to say goodbye. He's funny, he's profound, he's downright amazing. So here to cheer you up is our full 40-minute interview with the one and only Matthew Weiner. Welcome back to Ask Me Another, NPR's hour of puzzles, word games, and trivia. I'm Ophira Eisenberg, and please welcome our VIP, the creator of the television series Mad Men, Matthew Weiner. Welcome to Ask Me Another. Hello, Santa Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know that this is, you know, a high-pressure game show environment for you. But it's not the highest pressure game show environment that you've ever been part of. No, it's not. Because people don't know this, not everyone knows this, but Matthew Weiner was a Jeopardy champion. (laughs) You gotta tell us a story. Uh, It was the only money I earned for the first (laughs) five years of my marriage. (laughs) And... uh, I watched every day, and I uh, had watched through college and done badly in some classes because it was on in the afternoon, but I am kind of a trivia person. Yeah. I grew up with, you know, the Guinness Book of Records and the Trivia Encyclopedia and the Book of Lists, and I did that instead of reading books. So you go on, you win. I do. And then you come back. Yes. And, and how, was, how was... I lost by a dollar the second day. One dollar? Yes, yes. And I, uh, I remember uh, my father said to me, just, you know, you'll be okay as long as you don't go against one of those, you know, professional single women. And I said, what are you talking about? Oh, wow. And he goes, because they always win. And this woman uh, came on and she was a uh, surgeon. And, uh, you know, the, the category comes up, uh, the glass menagerie. Mm-hmm. And she nailed it. <laughs> she just went and ran the board. She knew everything that there was to know. And, I, you know, we... I, 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 I also, you know, leaned into the microphone a little bit and had trouble with the buzzer and stuff like that. It's so, it's so scary to be on TV. And you're such a nerd, you know, to get on there. And uh, they had a big... They had an auditorium like this size you yeah. know, to take the test. And the test was pretty easy, and only three of us ended up there in I the have, end. I've heard the test is very hard, so I find that interesting. For trivia people, it's not that hard. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's not as hard as watching Jeopardy, that's for sure. And so only three of us are asked to stay, and they take us down for a practice round, and um, basically to see if you were a human being or not. Right. And uh, one of the guys wasn't. <laughs> 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 he was a lay therapist, and he um, kept, uh, he argued with them about the answers to all the questions. Mm. And the, the bookers were like, you know, we're pretty sure that, that Rhode Island is due north of, of New York City. We're pretty sure. And he goes, I don't think that's right. And I just remember turning to him in front of all of them going, don't you want to be on the show? Right. <laughs> control it. And he was like, can't control it. I can't like, control it. I'd rather be right than be on Jeopardy. So... A lot of people that have been on Jeopardy uh, remember the question that they didn't get. Do, or does it? Oh, well, I got the question. The first day I didn't get the question, but I right. had the most money. And oh. that was something, it was the elements, and I am, uh, my father is a neuroscientist, so I know no science whatsoever. And uh, it was something like this, 
thing is named, this greenish gas has a Greek name. And uh, I said something like viridium, something made up, and it was chlorine. I've <laughs> never forgotten that, believe yeah. me. Okay. <laughs> like chlorophyll, <laughs> like all of them. But the second day it was um, uh, Irving, uh, Irving Stone's book, The Passions of the Mind, is about this man, and it was Sigmund Freud. I knew that one. That right. was on our bookshelf. Hadn't read it, but I've seen it. And who knew that seeing that on the bookshelf all those years oh, would All would of my come... knowledge comes from walking by books or holding them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you interact with fellow Canadian game show host Alex Trebek? Uh, I, I was really excited to, to meet him. And um, during the ending of the, of, the, of the thing, you get to talk to him if you're a champion. And I said to him, uh, I have to tell you, I got a D in a, one of my classes because it was on during Jeopardy and I never went. And he, without, you know, because you're facing the, the, the camera, sort of talking out of the side of your mouth, yeah. he said, oh, that's surprising. Most of our contestants are excellent students. <laughs> and I was like, Did And he didn't my... say sorry? No, he didn't say sorry. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I punched you in the face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the Canadian way. Right. Yes. I'm not impressed by him right now. He was not impressed by me at all. Really? No. He well, expected someone smarter. Uh, I, think, I think now if he, he remembers that, I'm sure he's like, oh, interesting. <laughs> I, I think it was just a blur to him. Just a blur. You never know. You never know. So they say, you know that they say, write what you know. Yes. And here, you were raised in L.A., your father was a neuroscientist. Yes, is. Is a neuroscientist. Your mother went to law school. Yes. So why write a show that is set in an ad agency <laughs> in the 60s in New York? Uh, maybe I wanted to live there. I really? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> I get asked a lot of stuff. I've never been asked that. I mean... When I was on The Sopranos, I remember someone coming up to me, I go, I heard you're the uh, son of a Jewish doctor from Hancock Park, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I have what they call an imagination. <laughs> I mean, you know, you dream yeah. of what you dream of, you know? I didn't change my name or anything like that, but I definitely thought this, I was interested in the period. Um, I'd worked in TV for a while, and certainly an advertising agency has all the same problems with the creative versus the business, and the personality types and being a writer, a creative person that's being paid and under the gun. Right. You know, you're, you're given a lot of leeway. You know, you, you, you can play cards all day and still, as long as you deliver, you know, when's, when's a do is really what matters. So I sort of identify with the whole environment and I just like the period, you know, I like the entertainment from that period. And I, I just, I don't know, it's, that's so what it was. You, so, but you, were, you didn't grow up in the 60s because you're... I was born, I'm the same age as baby Jean on the show. I was born in 1965. Oh. Yeah. So you were nostalgic about that period in some way. Uh, yeah, I guess so. From your parents? I, you know what? Growing up in the 80s, the 50s was a really big deal yeah. uh, to, to my generation, at least in Los Angeles. And... Uh, there's rockabilly music and, you know, Elvis Costello, and it's hard to believe, but all this stuff is really attached to that. And, you know, the two TV shows that were on the air when I was really young were, you know, like the biggest shows besides Mary Tyler Moore were MASH and Happy Days. Yeah. So we were sort of bathed in this thing, Greece, all of it, uh, not the country. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I just was sort of interested in it. And I like the entertainment from that period. I think it's my parents' era, and they really kind of like 
were interested in it and sort of raised us in that also in some weird way. We had to know about you know the blacklist and we had to know who Edward R. Murrow was and a lot of those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I idolized it too uh, in a way. And actually, you know, watching Mad Men, I think a lot of viewers had that same uh, feeling like they idolize what was going on. Oh my God, the smoking and the cocktail. Yeah, and there's the definitely that. And there's a sort of slightly more negative pointed part to it, which is growing up in the shadow of the baby boomers who really talked about the 60s as if they invented sex and drugs and all this other stuff. It was over, by the way. My freshman year, you know, I went to college, we got like a dental dam in our mace, you know, there was like, <laughs> like it's like not hard enough for a freshman to have sex anyway. There's a huge AIDS crisis and they're all talking about that. And they had sort of abandoned in the Reagan era, whatever I think idealism that they professed to have and their individualism was under question. And I just thought what it must have been like to be an adult and go through that and sort of look at that generation and say like, hey, I went through World War II or Korea, the Great Depression, I'm, you know, Woodstock is not that impressive to me. Right. So when we watch the show, when I watch the show, Mad Men, you know, it's cinematic, it's subtle, uh, there's lots of imagery, there's lots of, there's lots of subtext, which is why I love it. Not everything is just blatant. Yeah. Uh, but did you get pressure from the network and, and, and other people to give more exposition and maybe, you know, they were like, make it so everyone can understand what's there, going on. Yeah, there was a, you know, I basically said you have to, I mean, we're on a commercially supported channel. That made a difference. I think on HBO with The Sopranos, you know, look, the show should work on many levels anyway, but I enjoy the irony of real life. I enjoy, like, you know, someone tells me, says something really witty to me, and I go and repeat it two and a half hours later like I thought of it. I enjoy that, uh, the irony of that. We all do that. I'm not just talking about, like, keeping the change occasionally or anything like that. There's just, like, there are dramatic, there is dramatic irony in life, and I wanted to feel like real life, and I got a lot of pressure, yes, to, to make it less boring. Um, yeah. Less boring. Everybody on every network passed on it. You know, I've got a pilot where the hero takes a nap 15 minutes into the pilot. <laughs> He's a writer. I mean, what's he going to do? He's yeah. going to take a nap. Um, but uh, I think the sort of um, the trance that was encouraged of experiencing life and sort of being drawn into it and having to pay attention to it, and you know. I see sometimes, you know, people talk about, well, it's, they think something's obvious on it or whatever else it is. There, there is there, it's working on a couple of different levels. Hopefully there's a level in there that will hit you and you will have some moment of aha. Like, and some feeling that you can't put into words. And that's, that's always what I'm shooting for. And, you know, I, I fought for that. Uh, I really fought for it. I fought to not have a formulaic episode from week to week. That was really the hardest. So the second episode right. of the show when Don's not pitching something instead of cigarettes and is not up against the wall with some pitch and Pete Campbell's not in it and stuff like that and it's all about his wife and her psychiatrist and her low-speed accident because <laughs> that's what we do on the show. Um, you know, they, they were like, this is not what we thought it was going to be. And I was like, you know, this is going to be like real life. There's no guns. There's, uh, most of us hopefully don't have to experience violent crime or solve crimes or, you know, go on high-speed chases or, you know, go into outer space or wear a, take a shield to work. Um, I do like shows like that and I sure. like to escape and definitely that's part of entertainment, but I wanted it to sort of be on a human scale. And uh, the resistance was sort of like given up on some level because AMC was, had never had a show before and they were kind of like trying to stand out in some way. And 
they believed me. I was very assertive. I, I never said I don't know, even though I didn't know anything. <laughs> you were just like, this is the way it has to I, be? I just felt like it was the way I wanted to watch a show. It was like, this is a show I would like, and that had been my goal all along. I had accidentally gotten a piece of mail when I was at HBO that had the demographics of the people who watched The Sopranos, and it might as well have been a mirror. I like had the same income, oh the same God. zip code, the college, everything. I'm like, so pretty much if I like what's on HBO, it's going to be a hit. I'm the audience. So I would say, like, okay, I'm going to watch the show, and if I like it, and, I, and that's how I won a lot of my arguments, you know. They're like, you can't use, you know, this, this phrase. I remember getting a note. It was, uh, here he comes like Romeo uh, without his row. Uh, here comes Romeo like a dried herring without his row. And very clear <laughs> who wrote that line, but not to the person giving notes, who said, this sounds pretentious, what is it, and I don't get it. And I said, it's from Shakespeare, and Pete has just come back from his honeymoon, and it's a, it's a very dirty Elizabethan way of saying he just had sex. And she said, I don't get it. Oh, no, oh, I know that, Romeo and Juliet. I should have known that, because it had Romeo in it. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I said, when you, you know, did you understand it? Did your cats understand it? You know? She's like, yeah, I understand it. I said, well, let's make the show for us. Let's make the show for us. We watch TV. And that was kind of what I told them was the philosophy over at HBO, even though I was never privy to any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you played a little chess I did, back and forth. I did, I did, I did. They had never made a TV show before. Right. I mean, I was kind of like, you know, I was the expert. Right. You know, and I had been standing next to greatness. I was on The Sopranos for the last oh three years of the show. You know, it was a, 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 a huge hit, a multi-billion dollar industry when I showed up. And so I just sort of said, well, over at The Sopranos, and I didn't know anything. I was, a high, I was an employee, you know? I was a writer, but I was an employee. David yeah. Chase was the genius over there, so. But I, I, I used that trump card a lot. I was like, well, David always said, if, if he knew the stuff that I said that he said, <laughs> David always said we should have a Starbucks run right around 3 o'clock. <laughs> I know it's going to come out of the budget, but, we, you know, an army runs on at Starbucks. Napoleon actually said that. <laughs> Right over at HBO, the creators get uh, pay increases like every no, no, single. No, 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 that, that that would never work. <laughs> That's where you draw the line. You know what? I, I, it was never on my mind. I, they were the only people who wanted to make the show, and they were so generous with their with their minds. And there was a real spirit of like independence and kind of like underdog, which there is. I mean, we we have no budget. We had no budget all the way till the end of the show. We really made the show on the cheap and found ways to solve problems and you know we're on this network that you know it'd be like saying okay you just finished on on you know name the name the gigantic hit show that you just finished working on and you're going to go work on youtube right right and that's what it was like to people so i am always grateful to them for making it and for being so supportive and and for finding an audience which by the way does span it no one even knows how our audience works we have like college kids talking to their grandparents, men in their 40s for obvious reasons, women in their 30s and 40s for obvious reasons, octogenarians, you know, people in, you know, like the guy you had up here who just like to write in and say, your font is wrong. <laughs> I like, I, 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 I you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's it, it has some appeal to people, some of it which is still relevant, which is, is kind of like looking in behind your parents' bedroom door. Well, I can understand, yeah, I can understand why, because of the time period, too, why it spans so many ways. Like, people react to that time period in so many different ways. Like, that is an amazing... I think it was kind of forgotten, in a way, too. 
I think that people sort of thought that it, you know, it sort of went from like, you know, Marilyn Monroe to Woodstock. And I don't think that they knew that there was this whole sort of like, you know, they know, they know about Camelot, they know about the Kennedy assassination, but I don't think they know that this was a gradual change, you know? And I was just really interested in like, if I got to do the show and cover 10 years in their life, even though the first season was all about how it's not the way you think it was, that they were not innocent, when you got to the end, you'd look back and say, oh, they're so innocent. Right. Because we're, they didn't just, know we're just human beings, you know? You no, know, you just said you did it on the cheap. What was, what was one thing that sticks out that was super expensive that you're like, all right, we're blowing our budget on this? We went to Hawaii. That oh, was really yeah. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> we actually went to Hawaii, and we brought our crew because we, they're filming so many things there, we couldn't even find people there. We had to do period... Um, we did that was shot in one day. Scott Hornbacher directed it, and you know it was planned to the teeth. But that was uh, that was an expensive trip to move the whole crew there for you know ten minutes of the show. Oh my god! And to yeah. find people who don't have tattoos who could be in the you know in the Luau show, and you know it was really it was it was pretty it was pretty amazing. So you found that one guy. I didn't get to go. <laughs> we found a, we found that one guy. Um, no, and just sort of recreating. I mean, Hawaii is so such a big part of the American imagination. <laughs> And to sort of, and it became a state in the mid '50s, and there was like parties. It was, it's like it is now. It's just like some part of your imagination. I was like, we should go. We should try and capture it. Just try and get like a glimpse of it. And then I turned it into a metaphor for being dead, which is what Hawaii wanted. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's where I hope to go when I die. No, by that the was way. that was. I mean, me too. It's yeah. paradise. So uh, that was really expensive. I mean, you know, we did a car accident. Um, I think it's season two, that was like 30 seconds. And we started shooting things like old movies. We tried to do as much as we could. But, you know, you see the car swerve off the road. We shot in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And then you cut to it, and it's on its side, and it's smoking. That 30 seconds, those three lines in the script, to balance that out financially, I had to write a seven-page dialogue scene. Because <laughs> people talking in the same room is pretty cheap. And, um, you know, seven pages is a long scene, just so you know. Right. It is. It's, it's, it was a, I looked at it as a challenge, but I'm like, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. The music, you know, we get a lot of credit for the music at the end of the shows. We really couldn't have a song every show. I have an amazing composer, and I didn't always want to do it, but we would, if we wanted to do something like use the Beatles, we would not have music in three or four shows of the season to sort of balance it out. And, you know, I watch shows and, you know, uh, and I love Game of Thrones, but I watch, you know, we go to awards show and we see a clip and I'm like, that clip costs more than our season. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I mean, I don't want to, it's over now. There's nothing to fight about. But um, we really came up with some interesting creative solutions uh, all, all the time to, to not having enough money. And I think it made the show better. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would never thought of that while I was watching it. Like, wow, good. This is I a, really don't want you to think yeah, about no. it. I shouldn't say it at all. I mean, no, I it's say, fascinating. I've had directors uh, come up to me and say, "God, that show would be great if you guys had any money." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, thanks. I think that that's not even slightly a compliment." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, it did fine. It did great. I'm very happy. <laughs> it did great. I'm very happy with it. <laughs> The thing, the thing that makes the biggest difference is, get it, is getting the right people. The right people I, the involved. Right people, the right people behind the camera and the right people in front of the camera. So, you know, of, of the fantastic actors, and obviously they have great characters to play, and it's always been speculated, what character is you? Uh, and people have a lot of different theories. Okay. But I'd love to hear which one you liked writing or saw yourself. I, they are all parts of me. They all parts it's, of uh, It's that sad. Uh, you know... <laughs> It really is. It really is. I, I've got some Joan in me, some Ro I got a lot of Roger. 
Um, I wish I was Don, probably, in some way. I'm more like Pete. Uh, got some Peggy, you know, all, all of them. Betty, they, they're, you know, it's hard to explain, but you're, you're, they're outside of me. It's not, it sounds really weird, but they're outside of me. Is there they, one in particular that you'll miss writing the most? I miss all of them. Yeah. I miss all of them. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, the great thing is to have that many good actors that you can write for. You know, you got Kiernan, you know, who started when she was six and now she's 15 and you could write scenes for her and like develop Sally as a character. And what would happen is, is that, you know, it's so different every week. There's no formula. The scripts don't have a formula. Stories don't have a formula. So if you're someone like me who gets bored easily, you're never really doing anything that painful. It's always challenging. It's always, seriously, it's like, okay, we had a big Pete story. Now we're gonna have a big Roger story. I'm always interested in Don. That's not a problem for me. Um, other people's stories become part of Don's stories. You know, writing for Megan was fascinating and to see her relationship with him. So those kinds of things, they always like keep you interested. But you know, you know what you don't miss writing are those, those conference room scenes are really hard to write. Right. And to have a character come in for like one scene and to not name them man one or client or something. I don't want to do that. I don't want to cast that person. So that requires some effort. Right. You wanted a little bit more depth. Yeah. And right, yeah. Oh, yeah. You always do. You want everybody to have a reason for being in the scene. Now, I'm sure you're getting all kinds of advice of what to do with your life now from <laughs> reasons anything. to be, as it were. <laughs> uh, I know that, you know, you probably have your own ideas, but are people, is David Chase giving you saying advice or people, your no. peers? No, I mean, you know, I sort of, I'm one of those people who ask for advice and, you know, it's, it's great to ask people for advice because you find out a lot about them, honestly. <laughs> sure, <laughs> They're sort of, sure. And um, some of the advice I got was to take some time off. And I think a lot of creative people who work this much. You know, I've been kind of like working every, I, I literally went from my last day at The Sopranos to opening the writer's room for Mad Men the next day. Oh my so God. So it's been like a 10 year terror and it's, it's been amazing. Right, the amazing. schedule must have been insane. It was, uh, you know, ask my family, you know, they're getting used to having me around right now. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> I was always home. I was always there for breakfast and everything, but I mean, I'm there. I'm there when they leave and when they come home and they're sort of hiding from me at this point. Um, <laughs> no, I got some advice to take some time off, to gestate, to think about what I want to do. You know, people say you can do anything, that kind of thing. Uh, no one has been very specific about what they want me to do. Things get sent to me. I mean, hmm. any script that anybody has written that happens between 1955 and 1965, I have seen. That is hilarious. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what you realize. You can do anything as long as it's what you just did. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to sort of think about, like, you know, the thing that drove me to create that, you know, which was very specific. Stop. And having a, having a TV show idea is a very unique thing. Having a, a, a TV, a limited series is, it could be an extended movie or something, but a TV show idea, an idea that has a premise that has enough characters that can go 92 episodes is a very unique idea. So I have not had that idea yet. Maybe you should set it in the future. That's really screw with idea. people. I've, absolutely. You know what? Let me get out of pen. I'm going <laughs> yeah, to get my perfect. idea right now. <laughs> Now, we're all about to experience the finale, uh, but of course, you have had it in your head for many years. Yes. How many years? When did you, when um, did you have it? I knew what was going to happen when I pitched the show to AMC. Okay. Okay, so but I didn't know how it was going to happen until probably three or four years ago. So it changed? No, how it was oh, going to happen. But I knew the, what, but I didn't know how. But the what is the same? Yeah. The what is exactly the I same? I have to say, I know, I was listening to, I do not want to end up being a question on that previous quiz. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's all I was thinking about. Uh, I, you know. 
The ending of the show is very organic to the story. And I love that people are interested in it and how I thought of it and what I thought of it, uh, what I thought it to be. But it's really just a, you know, every show has its own ending. Um, you know, whether you like it or not, it's coming from the show. This is not, you know, we're not going to be, there's, there's nothing else to it. Hmm. I don't know how to say it that way. But no, I it's mean, good. I, I think that, like, there couldn't be, I mean, there couldn't be any more pressure on it anyway. So what am I going to say? Like, you're going to love it. Right. You're going to hate it. I don't know. I, I like it. Here, the, the writers liked it. The actors liked it. At least they acted like they liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my wife liked it. And my wife hates everything. All right. She doesn't hate the show, but my wife does not lie to me. You know, I was sitting there saying, the other day, actually, just kind of worrying about it out of nowhere, because I really didn't think about it. I finished in October. We shot it last July. It is what it was. Mm -hmm. I know I didn't even worry about it. Uh, um, I knew what it, 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 it exists outside of me at this point. I can't do anything. And I said, you know, I'm wondering about the finale and stuff like that. Oh, and she was sitting there drawing. She's an architect. She's drawing on a piece of trace paper. And without looking up, she goes, the finale's awesome. Relax. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. So if you don't like it, blame her. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, we're all going to be glued to our television sh sets on May 17th, but yes, what are you so. doing? I have a, we, I had an opportunity to do something really cool, which is that Jason Reitman, the director, does this thing called a live read, and he's going to take the, the last episode of the first season and recast it and do a live read of it. This is at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles, in the big movie theater there. And that should be fun and interesting. I don't know who's going to play the parts or whatever oh else God. it is. I'm going to be there with the cast and the crew and my family. And then as soon as that's done, we're going to watch the finale in this audience of 1,500 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. Right. All right. Exactly. So, yeah, so, you're so, so I'll know immediately if I should, if I should leave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty sure that you're not going to have to I don't to know. It's, I, it was AMC like suggested this whole thing, and I was like, you guys have a lot of confidence in this. I guess I'm not going to have to like wear it like a, you know, the Iron Man suit or anything. <laughs> <laughs> your wife. Your wife's going to be there. My wife will be there, yeah. and I will just turn to her and say, you said. <laughs> <laughs> Stand up for Stand the people. Stand up. Yeah, tell them. It was your idea. <laughs> that sounds like an Doesn't incredible sound evening. Cool? It sounds incredible. I think it's one of those things like, you know, that I... I probably won't really experience it because I'm in a group of people. Of course. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I remember someone saying, taking a camera to the birth of your kid, and I was like, I use a camera for a living. I know that if I'm taking pictures during this birth, I will not experience it. I will be many layers away from it. And in this case, I think I actually kind of want to be that way. I've been asked so much about what it's going to feel like to end, and I don't even know. Sure. How could I, you possibly? Yeah, I'm just, I can feel now that I'm running out of real estate. I do feel it now, like, oh, there's only a couple left. That'll be it. So who knows? If I, if I knew what it felt like, I wouldn't have done it, probably. No, right, exactly. How can you yeah, know that going right. in? Well, I mean, uh, but I, I assume the, as they say... I'm very the... excited to, like, for people to see it, honestly. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I and mean... for it to be complete. I do have a feeling, you know, I didn't finish anything until I was 30 years old. I did not finish the script. I did not finish my thesis in college. I didn't finish that sentence. <laughs> I just, I, like, I... I and, and the idea that we really finish this thing, I have like a certain, it's a kind of adulthood. And it's, is it, it's 16 years between when you wrote the 14, pilot? 14, 14 years. years between when you wrote the pilot and, and right now. And right now, 14 years. It took seven to get on the air, and then we've been on the air for seven. And interestingly not enough, there is a year, uh, there are seven years between writing the pilot and writing the second episode. 
So, because I got to go in The Sopranos and go to school. Yeah. That was very helpful. But, you know, never give up. Never give up. You just can't give up. Oh, my God. You can never give up. I, I just can't believe that it happened. It exceeded all my expectations, everything. And I just think about, like, think, having it and, like, being told over and over and over again, even by people who thought the writing was good and it was an excellent pilot, whatever, that it would never work that no one would be interested in it, that the, the hero was unlikable, that the, <laughs> that the period was too expensive, that the, their greatest concern, and this really proved to be wrong, is that no one outside the United States would have any interest in this story because it's so American. And I was like, this is the American hero era. That's right. Like, you know, I'm from the 80s. Do you know how they feel about Elvis in Japan? <laughs> you don't even know. I mean, this and is... And how did it do internationally? It's, it's in 120 countries, and, like, however... It's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's really, really... It's, it's very popular in Turkey. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's very popular in China. And uh, someone said to me from there that they... They were actually talking about making their own version of it, like buying the format rights. They are going through this period right now. Oh, wow. And, and I thought, that's really interesting. It, and they just, you know, it's the, it, this is the cool America that, that, that influenced the whole world. You absolutely. Know? It's, it's, there's a reason why the Beatles are wearing ties at the beginning, is all I can say. You're going to uh, influence a whole new slew of Don Drapers. I don't know if that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's the American story. It really is. And, and it's a story of a lot of successful people over the world. And I kind of wanted to say that, too. Like, in America, you can come from nowhere and from another country or from a West Virginia mining town and, or whatever and make up your whole life and not know your parents that well or whatever. And, you know, you may never heal from the wounds of that existence, but you can make it. You can really make it. I mean, someone was talking about the amount of presidents that are raised by single mothers. It's like, I think it's like half. It's just like, this is a place for, for that kind of hope. So I wanted to tell that story. Well, that story and, I mean, frankly, your story of like, here you are, a struggling screenwriter in Hollywood that everyone said no to. I was Linda's loser husband. <laughs> <laughs> you should know that. That was my title. I was the guy who you might ask to go get someone if they were coming into the airport in the middle of the day. <laughs> oh my God. And yet I don't know as much about TV as that guy. Uh. <laughs> I felt guilty watching TV during the day. I didn't want to get caught. I, I, although I have to say, this is dating it, but I mean, I was lucky that like Oliver North was on TV when I was out of work and then Anita Hill. So I just sat there the whole time. This is where it comes from, just hating America. And then I was like, you know, by the time I went to write the show, I, I, you know, I would get donuts all the time from this place in the corner. I also got really fat, by the way. And um, it was a Cambodian immigrant who was missing a knuckle of his finger, and he would sleep in the store. And that was when I was first out of work and living on that street. And seven or eight years later, when I moved to a house, I went back to get donuts, and his... He's closed half the time. His kids are in school and so forth. And I was like, I don't know that that would happen anywhere. Mm. You know? Yeah. That was the thing. That was the story. That you were like, all right, this is... This, this is, is a story. This guy doesn't sleep in the shop anymore. And how is he so thin when he works around the donuts all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I asked him once. He goes, I'm used to not eating. I was because like, oh, okay, so no, because he was a boat person. <laughs> Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, I know. He's like I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess you can tell I've had no hardship in my life because 
yes, I want that one. No, the big one in the back. <laughs> well, I mean, the things have certainly I changed got to since know the donuts. The, yes, I got to know the people in the neighborhood because I was out of work. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, 14 years later, yes. uh, creator of one of the greatest television series on TV in, oh. in most of our, in, in my life, that is for sure. Oh, thank you So, yeah. Thank you. Do not miss the full episode where Vincent Carthizer and John Hamm lend their voices for Matthew Weiner's Ask Me Another Challenge. <laughs> <laughs>